0: I've been looking forward to uh, talking about uh, this story the parable of the shrewd manager we're in the middle of a little series looking at stories Jesus told um, maybe we could have entitled our series are you sitting comfortably or something like that because often the stories that Jesus tells can be discomforting and they kind of uh, prickers and they 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 provoke us to think a little bit, maybe, about where we're at and our attitudes. I'm sure that was true when people first heard Jesus tell some of these stories. We're going to look this afternoon at one of the oddest stories, I think, in in the whole of the gospels of all the stories that Jesus told. This is probably one of the strangest, and um, it, it, it's challenging, not not only because it has some unusual components and twists in it but also because Jesus himself gives a number of overlapping applications of the story and some people have already been asking me beforehand about some of them there's some very strange verses here as Jesus begins to apply it as well so we're going to be we've got quite a bit to get through but we're going to do three very simple things we're going to first of all look at the story itself and then we're going to Have a little explore of the applications that Jesus makes from verse 9 uh, down to about verse 13. And then finally, I want us to have a little think about what a personal response to this story might look like for people who are hearing it, including us today, and including the people who heard it the first time, because Luke records some responses for us. So they're the three things. We'll look at the story itself, the applications and then we'll look at some personal response. Okay? So first of all, um, the story itself. We're thinking here about verses 1 to 8. Um, I, I was wondering whether to play a clip for you today to see if you could like name the TV program. Um, and I won't try and whistle it for you because I'll get it all wrong. But this story reminds me a lot of... Sir Alan Sugar and The Apprentice. You remember that program on TV? I think the Young Apprentice is about to start, isn't it? With where they have all the fifteen, sixteen, seventeen-year-olds. Sir Alan Sugar, those chilling words when he looks you in the eye and says, "You're fired." With regret. Well, sometimes he's pleased, isn't he? You're fired. Um, it's right there in this story in verse 2 there was a rich man who had a kind of agent someone has basically dobbed him in to his manager someone has told the boss that this guy has been wasting his stuff or maybe not maximising his assets and uh, the guy the manager calls him in in verse 2 and says what is this I hear about you what have you been doing Give an account of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. You're fired. So he's basically, I'll have your P45 ready. Here's your coat. Give me the accounts. It's time for someone else to do your job. You're out. Now, the, the guy in the story, in verse 3, has a little think to himself. For about two seconds. And then panic sets in. As it would. So in verse 3. The manager says to himself. What am I going to do? I've lost my job. I can't dig. I don't really want to beg. And then he has a kind of eureka moment. He's he's not naked in the bath. Like Archimedes apparently was. But he has this eureka moment. The light comes on. And um, he says in verse 4, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So what does he do? He calls in all the people who owe owe money to his boss. And he slashes all their bills. So he's, he's, he's been fired for incompetence. He calls all the people in who owe his boss money. And he says, you are what? 800 gallop? Make it 400. You come and alter the ledger here. Thanks very much. And and all these people who are coming in, these debtors, all their Christmases have come at once. The hard verse comes in verse 8. Because there, the, the, the big boss, Sir Alan Sugar... It says in verse eight that the master commended the dishonest manager. I, that verse is difficult because I think if that was really Swell and Sugar, he, he, he would have I, I think he would have got a little bit further than that, wouldn't he? Yeah, I've just fired you and you've taken it upon yourself to suddenly reduce my income. What on earth are you playing at? Let's get the solicitors involved because this is no laughing matter. But this master seems to compliment him. He compliments him because he's acted shrewdly. I'm not sure if we would be slapping him on the back and saying, Well done. Well, no, it doesn't say slapped him on the back, but would we really have complimented him? So here's a couple of questions. First one Is Jesus saying, first of all, that dishonesty is a good thing? That's the key here, isn't it, to understand this story. On the surface, it seems like the bad guy becomes the good guy. He rips off his boss, and both his boss and Jesus seem to think that what he's done is a great thing. What is it, what's that all about? That's, um, maybe an illustration might help us uh, to think this through. I don't, I don't know if you, if you like films, there was a film trilogy. Um, I think it's a trilogy I'm trying to think if there's another one been made since Uh, Ocean's Eleven do you know that film and Ocean's Twelve and Ocean's Thirteen I think there were three, wasn't there the first film in the series um, stars a, a bunch of famous actors and it's really a crime caper it's actually a remake of an old Frank Sinatra film and George Clooney plays this guy, Danny Ocean and he picks 11 of his criminal friends who plan to rob $150 million from three different casinos in Las Vegas. And they have three rules, this, this group, Oceans 11, Danny Oceans 11. And the three rules are no one should get hurt. They only rob people who deserve robbing. And the third rule was do it like you have nothing to lose. So it's a, it's a crime caper. It's all about criminals who steal things. Now, I've met a few people who've watched these films and enjoyed them. But I haven't met anyone who has watched Ocean's Eleven who thinks that stealing is a good thing. And yet the whole film is about stealing. Because the point is, everyone who watches this film says something like, wasn't it clever what they did? they thought of everything didn't they it was the perfect heist and the twist at the end and you just realise how clever is that and by the end you're thinking wow what? They, they'd absolutely planned it to perfection the perfect theft has been committed no one condones the thieving but yet everyone who came out of the cinema or who watches this on, a, on TV ends up admiring their ingenuity you get the point at first glance Jesus seems to use this story to command dishonesty but he wasn't complimented for his dishonesty just look at verse 8 again the master commended the dishonest manager, why? because he had acted shrewdly he wasn't commended for his dishonesty what he was commended for was his cleverness his ingenuity, his shrewdness. It's almost like Jesus is saying, You've got to love this guy. Back to the wall, staring down the barrel of the gun. And just look what he does. Is that clever or what? That that's what Jesus is really saying. So Jesus isn't saying, Isn't it great to be a criminal? But he is saying this guy is really smart. Just watch what he does. When he's back, it's against the war. My second question is: Why did Jesus not just tell a simpler story that emphasised shrewdness? I, I, I think part of the answer to that is that that would be quite boring, and I don't think any of the stories that Jesus tells in the Gospels could be accused of being boring. There's often a twist. And this story has a twist in it because his brand of shrewdness is a particular brand of shrewdness. And we'll see that hopefully as we go through it. Let's uh, just get back to the story and dig a little bit deeper. It it is hard for us to understand what goes on in a story like this because it isn't really like The Apprentice. Um, This is not Canary Wharf in London. This is not the stock market or Wall Street This is what we would call an agricultural economy, isn't it? It's a long time ago. This is a farming type business. It's all about land and farming. And when you read commentaries on this story, there are more theories written up on what this story means than than we would have time to go through. Some of them are bizarre. But I want to give you, let, let me give you my take on it. I'm not saying this is the only way to see the story but you see if you think this makes sense and, and it helps us to see the twist. It seems pretty obvious to me anyway that this, um, this boss in the story is some sort of landowner. Uh, he's a rich man um, and he, he has this guy, an agent, who's managing his affairs. I think in this time... What would have been happening was that the land that the boss owns would have been rented out to tenants. And they can harvest their crops and they can take them to market and sell them, and that's their business. But in return for the use of the land, they have to pay a kind of rent, which is probably a percentage of the total crop to the guy who's the boss. So he's made, isn't he? He owns the land. And everything they harvest, he gets a percentage of it. But the agent, in this case, is incompetent. And in this culture that, I don't know, prides itself on making money, someone tips off the boss that this fellow has been slacking. And he's not maximising the boss's assets. He's wasting opportunities. The manager isn't behaving dishonestly at the beginning of the story. He's just... He's just rubbish at his job. He's not being accused of embezzlement or fraud. The, the manager doesn't dismiss him because he's been stealing things. He just says to him, give me the account of your management. You can't be my manager any longer. You're fired because you're not good at your job. But if he's not dishonest in his job, it must be what he does later. Because in verse 8, Luke says, The master commanded the dishonest manager. So it must be what he does in the second half of the story that's dishonest. And the question then is, if he's been dishonest in the second half of the story, which we've seen here, slashing the bills without any authorisation, how does he pull it off without incurring the wrath of his boss? He seems to do what he does in a way that, although it costs his boss even more money, the boss doesn't seem to be able to do anything about it, and can only stand back in amazement and admire the fact that he's been utterly stitched up. I think one possible plausible explanation could be the manager realizes he's losing his job and it comes to him that he has one last chance to make his future safe. He's a broken man. He's staring down the barrel. People talk, don't they, about fight or flight. Do you know that phrase? When you're under pressure, some people fight, some people run away. Fight or flight. This man faces his kind of D-Day and he doesn't put his head in the sand. He doesn't run away. He's got nowhere to go. He musters all of his personal resources. Think, think. You can imagine him calling the the president to think. I know. And he calls in the tenants who owe the boss a percentage of their crops. And he discounts their fees. Now it's not, it's not vitally important but you can imagine... He says to the tenants, do you know what? It's been a good year and the boss is feeling generous. Take a discount. He wants to just be generous and help you to have a good year as well. He's willing to revise the amounts that you owe. He's also pretty clever because he gets the customers to rewrite the accounts so that he can't be accused of just fiddling. And I think what you've got going on here is a whole region of barn dances going on. Can you imagine the parties? Everyone's singing the master's praises for his great generosity. What a guy. People are coming up to him in the street and saying, you've got no idea what you've just done. I, I don't know. My mum can have that operation now that, you've been, that we've never been able to afford. Thank you so much for being such a great guy. And he's thinking, what? But he's, he can't quite say anything. You get the picture anyway. If the master now has to, wants to go back, he has to disappoint the whole town, doesn't he? His reputation for generosity is down the pan. It would be like taking the presents off the children at Christmas. And he just has to stand back and say, you've stitched me up, that's really clever. He doesn't like it, perhaps it's cost him. He isn't commending the guy's dishonesty, but he's amazed at the shrewdness and ability of this man to think on his feet. If I was the boss, I'd have been thinking, I wish you'd been that good at your job (laughs) in the first place. If you'd put that kind of energy into doing your job, maybe you wouldn't have lost your job. Whatever the issue, that's one plausible explanation. The main point of the story is clear. This man is not just shrewd. He's desperate. And he's instinctively Trying to create a future for himself. He's a survivor. And that's what he's commanded for. We, we might say. He's, he's a canny lad isn't he this fellow. He's a, he's a canny fellow. It's not a particularly nice chap. And it's a very unusual story for Jesus to tell. Where does Jesus go with it. As he applies that. To the people who are listening, well let 's have a little think about the application i 've missed an s off there deliberately. Most commentators identify four separate applications and I, and I started there, but I think as I'm, as i 'm turning this over in mind. I can't help feeling that none of those four applications get underneath the main point. And the, the thing that has bugged me, we'll, we'll come to it at the end. But the thing that has bugged me is verse 14. Jesus is not particularly speaking to Pharisees. They're eavesdropping. We'll, we'll come to them at the end. But Luke says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering and I, this story offended them and we'll, we'll get to that but it, I, I'm not sure that some of the applications that are made of this story would have that effect on people that were listening so if, if any application doesn't catch what offended those guys it's kind of missing the point of the story. So I'm not sure there are four applications. I, I, I think there's actually one big idea here that is very stunning and very provocative. And then Jesus explains and gives some keys as to how that single application can work in our lives. So we'll think of the big idea first and then we'll think about the two keys And and I'm going to, we'll do this in two parts. The big idea uh, is this. First of all, uh, be, be instinctive. That's the first half of the one big idea. Be instinctive. Jesus, first of all, points to the instinctive, desperate shrewdness of the guy in the story and effectively says to his followers, I wish you were like that. And the sense of it, it's not particularly polite. Look at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus says to his disciples, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. So he's effectively saying, see the guy in this story? I wish you would wake up and be like him. That's, That's the point. Be instinctive. Compared to him, you look like you've nodded off. That's what Jesus is saying. This man knew his neck was on the line. He knew he was accountable. He had to take it seriously. And he did. And the point is, when this man's faced with such great loss, he wakes up and he has to be dynamic. Why? Because he cares about himself. It's survival mode. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to do what he did. But I do want you to emulate his instinctive and energetic and dynamic response. Be instinctive. So that's the first thing that we can learn from verse 8. The second uh, half of the one big idea is this. Be instinctive in generosity. This man wasn't instinctively generous. He was instinctively self saving his life had fallen apart and he's trying to rebuild it he's not thinking about other people he's thinking about number one isn't he so he is instinctive but not in the way that jesus wants them to be instinctive now people were reading verse 9 before the service started today and saying to me what what on earth does it mean well verse 9 is very odd isn't it jesus says i tell you Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's got to be one of the oddest places in the Bible, hasn't it? Is Jesus saying you should bribe people to become your friends? <laughs> Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Excuse me. Well, we've seen the twist is that the man in the story was instinctively self-serving. And Jesus is saying, "I want you to be instinctive, but generous." I just don't. I don't want you, Jesus. Is saying, I don't want you to be grudgingly generous. like giving to charity to make yourself look better or because it's the done thing I want you to be generous unflinchingly and instinctively because that is what you really are on the inside I want you to emulate this guy's desperate instinct but not to save your skin but in being naturally and overflowingly generous Jesus is saying, I want generosity to be your natural default instinct. I suppose another way of saying this would be, why do people in the world care so much about pursuing what they want? And you, my disciples, care so little about giving what you have. Jesus is interested in our motives and it's challenging isn't it some people think that God can be pleased with religious people who on the outside look like they're doing all the right things actually here Jesus raises the bar much higher than that and questions not so much what we do but why we do it and who we really are on the inside so someone who looks the part but is not really and truly and instinctively generous is in for a big surprise and the really ironic twist is here that Jesus uses a kind of scoundrel the kind of person that a religious person would look down on to make his point why do I focus on generosity well the man in the story had an eye on the future didn't he It's a self-orientated concern. He wants another job, doesn't he, basically? He wants someone to take him in. He wants to be safe and secure in the future. And so he slashes all the bills so that people will like him and he'll get another job. And he does it in a very clever and a very shrewd way. Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings here's a thought for you I I think what Jesus is saying here is you should so live we, we should so live our lives here now that when we get to the gates of heaven There will be people already there who will be there because of our open-handed and instinctive generosity. And when you get there, they'll run to the door and they'll fling it open and they'll welcome you in with a gladness that will overwhelm you. The image here is one of getting to heaven and people who are there because of you rushing to the door to let you in do you get that this exact idea of a red carpet entrance into heaven is one that appears elsewhere in the New Testament we're not that comfortable with this are we because it sounds like reward Jesus talks about this kind of stuff all the time though doesn't he live now with an eye to the future not in the sense of earning salvation. We can't earn salvation, but we can live in a way that is an investment in the future. Just turn with me to 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1. Let be quick, go on. 2 Peter, chapter 1. 1. Um, It's on page 1222. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. uh, In the first section, Peter gives a whole list of characteristics and personal qualities. And he says in verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What image does that call to mind for you? A rich welcome. I'm not talking here about a theology of heaven. So don't don't, don't misunderstand me here. But when you get to heaven, will you be creeping in the back door? Will you be almost kind of coy? and I'm just going to sneak in the trademan's entrance. Or will it be a rich welcome... you will receive a rich welcome red carpet, trumpets this idea of investing in the future Jesus is saying I want you to think long term I want you to be naturally and instinctively generous but in a particular way I'm not just talking here about being charitable I want you to invest your present resources the stuff you own in the eternal well being of other people. To Christian people, Jesus is saying, What I want you to do is invest your stuff in the gospel. And to do it instinctively, and energetically, and dynamically. And I think that's what's radically countercultural about this. Jesus said, I want you to so live in this world. Fully immersed in the world. Yes, awake, alert, but instinctively outward looking. With an eye on the eternal well-being of other people. That, according to Jesus, is real shrewdness. Investing yourself and your stuff in other people. And those of you who are followers of Jesus then, what kind of entrance will you receive into heaven? Will you have to sneak around and no one will really notice or will you have so used your stuff in this life that there will be a massive party when heaven's door opens and there will be people there who owe their salvation in part to the things you did today. Be instinctive in generosity. Invest your lives in the eternal well-being of other people Jesus goes on uh, to give uh, that, I think that's what verse now means, uh, it's a very very odd verse isn't it, but I think that's something about what Jesus is saying here in the light of the story in verse 10 on which Jesus gives a couple of keys um, yeah, I don't think I will put them on here L- let me tell you them first of all in verse 10 Jesus picks up on the idea of the fact that this guy was an agent and um, basically he didn't own his master's land he was just he, his job was to handle his master's stuff wisely and I think verse 10 and 11 and, and 12 are, are possibly alluding to the fact that in actual fact our stuff is not our own anyway we, we are really stewards of the things that God has given to us and I think that's why this story has the twist on it that it does whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth as the, as the dishonest Manager wasn't trustworthy who's going to trust you with true riches and if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property who's going to give you property of your own he implies that God is their boss and that God too has given things to them and the stuff they have is not really their own in the end it's given to them on trust and they are like the agent in the story their job is to use what they've been given to maximise the opportunity. I, the truth is that every part of our nature cries out, doesn't it? That's mine. It's mine. Jesus says, no, actually, it isn't really yours. It's given to you. How are you going to use it? That is very countercultural, isn't it? In a world that is so selfish. If we can't manage now what God has given to us to bless others... How can, he, how can he entrust us with real substantial riches that have eternal value? Sometimes we fall into trap, don't we, of waiting until we have enough to put away and we're safe and comfortable and then it's too late. I think I've told this illustration to you before. In 1992, a survey was done in America and people were asked how much money they would have to make to be able to live the American dream. And the people who earned $25,000 a year thought that they would need around 54000 And those who were in the $100,000 a year bracket said that they could buy the American dream for an average of $192,000 a year. And this survey was interesting because what it demonstrated was that people in all salary brackets all thought that they would typically need double the income they currently had to to live the American dream. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't really matter where you are on that scale. Everyone in the survey thought that they needed twice as much to be able to be living the dream. The second thing that Jesus says in verse 13 is he touches on the matter of the heart and he reminds his followers that no one can serve two different masters. And he says to them, very famous verse, no servant can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus then sums up by saying, you cannot serve both God and money what Jesus is doing is cutting to the chase isn't he and saying what do you love the most Jesus is showing that true religion is really not so much about keeping rules as it is about God being enough it is about trusting God to satisfy and provide for us all that we need and the moment we make something else our ultimate desire, we're really saying that God is not enough. But this thing instead will make me really happy. But and when we make the good things God gives to us into ultimate things and put them in front of him, that is really where our heart is. That's what we love. And that ultimately will be what defines us and determine our destiny let's say uh, very quickly close by looking at the responses the first response is that of ridicule hopefully we can see now why what Jesus says causes a reaction if ever there was a group that could live up to religious rules it was the Pharisees I suppose you and I couldn't touch them for religious zeal but when they hear Jesus tell this story you, you would expect them to be celebrating here's more rules we can keep and yet when they hear Jesus tell this story what is their reaction they, they sneer they heard it all and their response was to sneer what does it mean that word sneer some, some time, I think sneering has got something to do with looking cool hasn't it and kind of looking down on someone else as if to say that doesn't really matter I'm bigger than that doesn't really know what he's on about and there's kind of something yeah he's he's an idiot isn't he we know there's a sneering, a belittling a kind of arrogance but often that sort of reaction ridicule is one of it's kind of a response to being pricked isn't it and challenged i don't really want to face what jesus is saying so i'm going to just ignore it by making fun of it and luke tells us why the pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at jesus they loved money you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men but god knows your hearts what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight they were mixed up because they loved money but wanted to look to other people like they loved God Jesus wasn't even talking to them and yet he touched a raw nerve and he rebukes them sharply you try to look the part but God knows what is inside your hearts and their response is ridicule Jesus is really saying that loving good things in a way that turns them into ultimate things that replace God in our affections is really what makes us ugly. He says here, detestable in God's sight. We are, we are living a life that is beneath where he wants us to live when we sink to loving other things more than him. the second response then I suppose lots of R's there is repentance and let me, let me just close with this we're nearly done the, the truth of this story really is I think so often with Jesus' stories is that we can't live up to these ideals because the problem is that we're instinctively self-centered aren't we we can't help it Jesus is not saying if you can just be like this then I'll accept you we would never make it he's saying this is what you should be like but you're not but you know what the great encouragement of the gospel is that this is exactly what he is like and I want you to see here that Jesus is the hero not me or you or anyone else Jesus is different and everything hinges on this And this is the point. Jesus is everything that we've said. Jesus is instinctively generous by nature. Our instinct is to flip inward. His instinct is to flip outward. Just think for a minute about the big picture. God creates the world. The world chooses to go wrong. We don't need God. We'll go our own way. We flipped inward. What does Jesus do? Let them stew. They brought it on themselves. It's their own fault. You can't help those who won't help themselves. Does he respond by flipping inward? No. Just imagine in heaven, in the inner councils of the Godhead, the Trinity—Father, Son, and Spirit—and as they wrestle with the problem of human selfishness, what happens? Jesus says, "Pick me, pick me. I'll go. I'll go." He instinctively flips outward. I'll oh go. It will be my joy and delight to lavish on these poor creatures everything I own. I know they don't deserve it, but that doesn't dilute my energy. It just gives me a chance to blow them away with kindness and grace and mercy. What an amazing saviour Jesus is. He doesn't flip inward. He's always flipping outwards. And even though we often put the wrong things first. Jesus has made it possible for us to be forgiven. And washed clean and brought home with gladness and great joy. The question is what do you do when you hear Jesus And you feel bad and you think, oh, Jesus, that's me. You've put your finger on something. Listen, Jesus doesn't convict you to shame you or destroy you. He does it to open your eyes to the way things really are. And to enable you to make a response to him. And to turn from a self-centered life that always flips inward... And to come home to trust Him as your first love. And to trust that He accepts you. died to save you. And if you let Him, He will work in your heart to liberate you from the self-centeredness that plagues us. So that you can begin to love God and serve others gladly this man was an instinctive survivor Jesus says be like him wake up be generous and invest your life with joy in other people and as we think about a personal response what, what will our response be will it be to sneer and to hold our stuff tightly and ultimately lose everything Or will it be to come home, to hold our stuff loosely, and ultimately gain everything? Let's uh, close with some words of Jesus. In another gospel, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said these famous words. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Amen.